You're listening to episode 31 of season 13 for day 209 of 2019. Believe me, it pains me greatly to be doing a palindrome episode 1331 and not have anything special planned. I apologize. What I do have planned, however, is more Linux reviews, or overviews, I should say. I'm not reviewing Linux. We're into the I section of the user bin directory. So user bin, we just did hex dump in the previous episode, so we're, we're on to things like Ionize and IPCMK, IPCRM, and IPCS. That's what I'm hoping to get through in this episode. I think we'll get there. We might even get farther. Let's begin. So Ionize, no, sorry, there's listener feedback first. I knew I was going to forget it, and I almost did. So listener feedback is pretty pretty interesting. I've got a pretty good collection here of comments about the uh, password episode that I did. Uh, in fact, I, th- I think I said hex dump I did last episode, didn't I? I, I meant two episodes ago. Uh, last episode was the password episode, and I was talking about password store, which is the pass command, which you can get at passwordstore.org, I think. Really, really useful. I'm having a great time using it. You should, yeah, passwordstore.org. You should, you should try it out. But some other people had some other ideas about what made a good password management system. Not sure that I'm, that I'm sold on any of them beyond and above pass. But I, I did kind of warn you about that, too. I said you can suggest alternates to me uh, and that I'd probably not try them anytime soon because that's just kind of – that's what I do. Um, so Ice Cream 95 says that there is a thing called Less Pass, which uses the new Bluetooth ultra-long-range feature to sync your password database distances of up to 1,000 – Thousands of kilometers, even if you have Wi-Fi off and cover your computer with tinfoil. I looked up less pass because that seemed a little bit too far out there for me to actually believe. And less pass is a thing. It is a stateless open source password management system. And it says, stop wasting your time synchronizing your encrypted vault. Remember, one password to access your passwords anytime, anywhere. No synchronization needed. So clearly Ice Cream 95 was making a joke when he was talking about using fancy new Bluetooth technology to synchronize a database thousands of kilometers. Good joke. Very, very, very funny. It definitely had me going for a while. Um, but what, what, what is interesting about this model is that, uh, if, if you, if you haven't picked up on it, it's just a calculator, right? It's, it is, it is devising a password from information that exists. In this case, it takes the site that you are on, the login that you are using, your master password, which it does not need to store because it's just using that as an input option, and then the different options that you have selected for the password. So for instance, only use numbers or use uh, an uppercase and then all lowercase or whatever. So there, there are certain I guess algorithmic inputs that you can that you can add into via the options. So it uses these four things: site login, password, and options. It sticks it into this calculator that they call LessPass, and then, or or specifically, I guess if you look at the at the code, 
it's uh, specifically they're putting it through uh, the cli less pass core.py and then it runs it through 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 its little algorithm generator machine and cranks out a rendered password something that 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 is a result a direct result of your input now this is an interesting concept to me because I've seen it before I've seen it in on a website that I've forgotten and I'll have to link in the show notes there's a website that 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 uses this exact model it, it's not quite as fancy I guess as LesPass because LesPass has a cool looking website and they've got the github thing and they've got a little heart emoji by all their contributor names and uh, they've got plugins like um, Firefox plugins and mobile plugins and stuff like that so you've you've got a lot of integration although strictly speaking you don't need that integration you can just go to LesPass the website and use it directly to to generate your password right because it, once again all it actually is is a calculator so if you if you go to lesspass.com slash hash that'll take you directly to the stateless password manager you can put in the site that you want to generate a password for do slackware.com and then you can put in your login name clat2 and then a master password bogus123 there's an options box so I could say uh, I want a password only with a and Z so lowercase uppercase number actually everything I'm just gonna activate everything so actually I think I just deactivated everything there blue is probably active it doesn't really make that super clear uh, that's kind of a design flaw actually uh, and then we'll do let's do a 21 character password and then there's this counter option which helps you um, sort of know which version of the password you're on so if you had to reset your password you don't have to reset your master password you can simply say well this is the the second password for this site that I've that I've generated so now I'll click generate and it has generated a password for me that I cannot even see there is a clipboard option so I copy it to my clipboard manager and now I can paste it into whatever I need to paste it click the little eyeball icon and it pops up what what it's generated and it's really really ugly it's a properly ugly not easy to remember or decipher kind of password now it's not random absolutely not random because it's generating it from from input and that's why it's interesting to me I guess because it's it's a calculator and that has been something that I've been intrigued about and in fact I, I did a Hacker Public Radio episode about this very this, this very concept of of having some some form of of password generation available to you. Now, personally, I think I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that I see the the advantage in less passes computational generation of passwords to something like I proposed in the Hacker Public Radio episode, which was just a matrix of random words which you then put in some order or put together in some fashion based on, again, just input, like some kind of input value. 
that you essentially you're doing an analog calculation. There's probably an advantage. I'm not by any means saying that there's actually no advantage. I mean, less pass throws around lots of fancy words and and algorithm names that I have no way of knowing what they mean. Actually, that's not true. I could look it up. I could do a little research. But realistically, I don't think I'm ever going to reach that level of, of mathematical enlightenment to truly understand how it's how, how it comes to all of the things that it arrives at. Then again, you're still, you know, the end, the end result is still a, a 21 character password or, or whatever you've put in, 32 character, whatever it is. So the brute force ability doesn't care about what algorithm is being used if if it's just brute forcing. But then you get into the whole the whole issue of well yeah but they don't know your login and, and so on and so forth. So it's it's a method of of doing password stuff. I don't know that it is the the best method. I don't know how people who are really really into this sort of thing consider it in terms of security. Whether they whether they like that it calculates or whether they feel like that's a huge weakness. I don't know. I could see myself using something like LessPass. Uh, there are, you, you can host it locally if you want to keep track of, of exceptions to certain, to certain um, sites. So, or you can use their database, and, and again, their database doesn't actually store any of your, of, of your private, like your actual information. It's just, it's just saving options for you. There's a version for the terminal, so you can just issue it as a command. You can actually install it with pip, I think, pip3 install um, less pass or something like that, and it installs and you, you know, have it as a as a, as a a command. So it's, it's pretty neat. It's, it's um, definitely definitely appealing. I could see myself using it, and certainly I'm, I'm more, it's more appealing to me to calculate a password than to store it on someone's cloud. So I guess that's the bottom line. Icecream95 in a separate message says that one of the killer features of KeePass XC is that you can see the characters of your password being typed in one by one thanks to the virtual keyboard features of X. You can also configure delays useful for the stupid Google login window, which doesn't show the password field until you enter your email. That's interesting. Never thought of that one. And then KeePass XC also has SSH agent integration. So once you've set it up, you don't have to type in SSH passwords when your database is unlocked. Well, that's pretty fancy too. So there, yeah, there are some pretty cool features to KeePass X, I guess. None of those features are, are things that I've ever thought I need. So I, I'm not, I'm not missing them with, with password store, for instance. So I, I don't think that will sort of sway me over to using KeePass by any means, but it's good to keep in mind, and certainly for, I think if I were doing certain things, you know, if my life were going a certain way, like if my daily routine was, was different than what it is now, then that might, those might be actually, yeah, those might be like killer features for me. Those, those could, I could see those being important. I thought I had another email about this from, from somebody else. And I, I can't find that now. So I, I'm not sure if I imagined the email or if I just read it and then deleted it. I'm not sure. So apologies if someone sent me another email about password stuff. I seem to have misplaced that email, which um, is actually pretty unusual. I don't usually do that. It's, it's usually a matter of having it in my inbox marked red. And 
forgetting to address it, but but certainly not. I don't usually just lose things outright. Okay, so that's enough listener feedback, I think. Let us get started with these commands. The first one is ionice. It is pretty straightforward. If we do an io, uh, man ionice, it says it's set or git process io scheduling class and priority. There are three three classes or four classes of of niceness according to ionice. Yeah, three scheduling classes. There's idle, best effort, and real time. There's also none. That's why I thought there might be four. So zero is none, one is real time, two is best effort, and then three is idle. What do those mean? Well, idle means exactly this. A program running with idle I.O. priority gets disk time when no other program has asked for disk I.O. for a defined grace period. So the impact of an idle process on a normal system, under, under normal system activity, should be zero. So idle is a very, very nice process. It doesn't even run unless nothing else is running. Or, or rather, it doesn't request disk I.O. unless nothing else has requested disk I.O. That's very different than running, I guess. Uh, and then there's best effort, which is, as you can imagine, not quite idle not quite real time it's kind of just does a best best uh best effort to be to be to, to have little impact to, to not interfere um it says that this class takes a priority argument from zero to seven with a lower number being higher priority so you can even so there's a fuzzy definition even within the best effort and then there's real time and the RT scheduling class is given first access to the disk regardless of what else is going on in the system. Thus, the RT class needs to be used with some care as it can starve other processes. As with the best effort class, eight priority levels are defined denoting how big a time slice a given process receives on each scheduling window. The scheduling class is not permitted for ordinary, that is, non-root users. Which makes sense. You wouldn't want to be able to schedule something with the highest of priority as just a normal user. So I can see that I, I can see Ionice being a useful tool for, for instance, if you're setting up a, a, a cron job or something to kick off some backups or or some kind of maintenance that you're performing or, or a job that you know that you need to do but you don't want to slow down the entire computer while doing it. Maybe you're R-syncing uh, uh, one data from one drive to another something like that i can i can see that this would be very useful to to really demonstrate it i would have to come up with something that would that would take up uh some great kind of priority on the system and i wouldn't want to do that while recording a podcast so i'm not going to do that what i will do is say that ionice will report back to you the priority is that something is is running under so ionize p for the, the for the pid of let's say let's do pgrep um in a different window here let's do pgrep of i don't know bash okay so here's the latest session of bash that i launched 14986 so i'll do an ionize p 14986 none prio4 so it has no 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 class, it's none, and then priority level of four. 
which I think is about mid mid range really. Now we could we can generate a different output by doing ionice dash c for class, and then let's do uh, well zero is boring. We've seen that that's none. One is real time. We can't do that without root, so we'll do two. That should be best effort, and we'll give it a level that's dash in of let's do zero because that's that would be highest priority but within the best effort range and the program that will launch is excise so a pair of eyeballs appears on my desktop that's what excise does and now if i go to a different terminal and do ionize dash p uh, i need to know what that is first so p grep xis is 15496 15, p15496 15, comes back as best effort prio0 so we know at least that it's been set as advertised control c out of that and and that's that's ionice so the the use case again that i would see is prepending it in front of a process that you want to launch but you want to control how it how it runs don't want to slow down your computer just while doing some intensive process launch it through ionice and and let it let it sort of take a back seat or i guess if you have a process that you need to have a higher priority than its default would normally afford it again run it through ionice and watch it take up all your cpu cycles Okay, so that's Ionice. Let's talk about IPCMK, IPCRM, and IPCS. These are, uh, I would probably argue, specialized specialized programs having to do with the creation and uh, checking and uh, introspection of shared memory. So shared memory is exactly what it sounds like. It's memory that is meant to be shared between processes. There are a couple of different implementations of this on Linux. There is the traditional one, the AT&T System V old school Unix version, which happens to be the one that I've got installed here on Slackware. And then there's the new POSIX one, which I, I don't think is on here. Maybe it is. Um, I don't I don't see any sign of it anyway. It's called message git, I think. And it would be a it would be a C function and there it is. No, this is system V again. So yeah, I'm not sure if I have the the, the new POSIX one on this Slackware box. I'm just not not sure what provides that and I haven't really looked into it. And that's fine, because IP uh, IP C MK and IP IPC uh, S and IPC RM are 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 introspection tools into this into this sub subsystem. There's a really good article about this, uh, just about interprocess communication in general, on opensource.com at opensource.com/article/19/4/interprocess-communication-linux-storage, and it's a it's a good little intro to to the concept of of shared memory and and where you put stuff and how you get it back out. And that's kind of what I'm going to boil this down to, not not necessarily from this article, but 
it's talking about the same thing. But if you want to talk, if you if you want to read a lot more about this stuff, go read that article. But for now, what I will say is that interprocess communication is a kind of a big space, and talking about these tools, the IPC, uh, MK, and so on, does not encompass it all. Because really, the, the idea of interprocess communication is the, the acknowledgement that two processes might actually need to share some kind of information between one another. And, and so the question becomes, well, how do those two processes get it? And if you think about how in an application sometimes, when you're programming it, if, if you've programmed even a script sometimes, if you've done just bash a script with functions, then you've probably experienced this. Sometimes you'll create a variable or something, and you'll want that variable's value to be used by some other function. And so you're, you're doing this, and, and you're programming, and then you try to run it, and it says, never seen that variable before in my life. Don't know what you're talking about. And then you have to learn about how you pass information from from one function to another, or from one, one class to another. It's kind of basic programming protocol, really, but it's something that you have to figure out or get taught in school in order to to know how to how to handle this data that you're that you 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 create or you instantiate somewhere, and then you want some other thing to all of a sudden have access to it. And generally speaking, computers they they try to avoid that. You know, you don't you're not creating information for all processes to have access to. You, you, it's very targeted. So interprocess communication can can be as specific as a message queue that you create in a C program or an IPC message queue that you create in Bash, for instance, which is what we're about to do. Or it can be just in general, like a Unix socket. It can be a network socket. It could be a it could be a um, what do they call them? A messaging uh, a messaging s uh, system like uh, what what is it? M what is it? MQ MQ yeah Rabbit MQ. I knew there was a rabbit in there somewhere, and I couldn't remember if it was MQ Rabbit or a Rabbit MQ. But yeah, all of these sorts of um, Rabbit MQ, the messaging, it's a message broker. That's been used a lot. I, I've been at a couple of different jobs that used RabbitMQ fiercely to basically broadcast messages across uh, across the network, the, the intranet, and some process would be listening to that message queue for a signal, and when it receives that signal, then it then kicks something else off. So important note is just that the, the interprocess communication is a big category of of computer of how computer or how applications can talk to each other in some meaningful way and it's it's a lot bigger than what we're covering here all right so let's just get let's get into these commands here so ipcmk is the uh, it it allows you to quote quoting its man page here create various ipc resources so that's pretty generic in itself which is kind of funny but um that that's the general idea that it you can create various IPC resources and in this case we're going to create a message queue just to demonstrate kind of what we're talking about when we say interprocess communications 
So we're going to do IPC MK and then dash dash shmem, shmem for shared memory. Or we could just do dash capital M and we'll create one megabyte of shared memory. You can also create a queue, which is exactly what we want to do. So I'm going to do dash dash Q, which is Q-U-E-U-E. -U -E. Or you can just do dash Q, capital Q. And after you've done that, you get a little get a little message about what you've just done and an overview of all the different addresses that you have created or, or IDs that you have created. It won't mean a whole lot to you right now, but there it, it tells you that the message ID is 115, or I mean, it's going to tell you whatever it tells you. But for me, it, what I'm seeing on my screen right now is that message ID is uh, 294.914 and that the message ID or the um, memory ID is 11501623. That's meaningless, but we can see that we've created those entities, those objects, with IPCS, which is IPC show, S for show. Type that in, and you get a big long list, a screenful of all the different kinds of interprocess communication. Uh, spaces that you have available to you on your computer right now or that you have running on your computer right now so right right up at the top is message queues and sure enough there's an MS QID message QID and if you look through the the listing it's a pretty short listing uh, 294914 that's the one we just created below that is shared memory segments and there's a bunch of these on my system at least but if we look really carefully for 115, whatever, 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 23, here it is. So at address 0x831c8cf2, there's this a, a memory um, ID, shared memory ID, 11501623. So again, that's the one we just now created. And we, we know that because message IPC MK told us so how do you use these well that's the weird thing about this um, we, we just created a shared memory space we can we can see that it exists but we can't really do anything with it and and it's not intended to be used really in a bash script for instance I mean maybe it is but but I think Primarily, it's it's for debugging and things like that, and managing something if something's crashed and you need to get rid of that inner process communication space for whatever reason because it didn't clean up after itself. You could use these commands, but generally speaking, you're not going to be typing. You know, you're not going to be writing your Bash script to uh, convert pictures to thumbnail sizes to upload to your web server and think, oh well, what I really need here is an IPC MK. It's not going to happen. But I do want to demonstrate. A little bit more about interprocess communication in principle, and the only way I could find to do that, I couldn't find a, a bash command to insert data into an into shared memory, and then to get the the thing out of the shared memory, which is what you would expect for a messaging protocol. That's what it does. It interprocess communication communicates between processes, so it's basically a mailbox, but for applications you should be able to have an, an application create an interprocess communication address space and for another application to read from it. And that's that's 
that's why it's interprocess communication. So I will demonstrate at least part of that. The user would not be aware of it. The way that we're doing it here in this example is silly. We're, 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 we're telling a user essentially, oh, in order to use my application, you have to go and create some memory space and then put the memory space address into my application and then compile the application and then run it. And you'd have to do that every time you wanted to use the application. So obviously that's not the way it's intended. But what we'll do is we'll drum up a little C application here. You can find very, very similar applications online all over the place as kind of a demo of how to use this. I've stripped some of the demos down because I think that they get a little bit too involved because they're worried about silly things like how you would actually use it in real life. And I want to just demonstrate the point of IPC. Now this is not a this is not intended to be a tutorial on handling the message queue subsystem in C. It's this is not the point. I'm just doing this because there's no better proof of concept in Bash. So this is the proof of concept that will eventually run in Bash, but we have to we have to write it and compile it first. Um, so we'll, we'll go through it rather quickly. If you're not familiar with C, that's fine. Just take it on faith that all of this is dealing with interprocess communication. And I guess we may as well start there. In fact, by including so that's hash include angle bracket sys slash ipc dot h. So that's right there. You you kind of you, you see that IPC, the, the header file for interprocess communication, we're including that in the C program. And similarly, we will include sysmessage.h, because there's a, you, you'll see, actually, you'll see the, the message functions that we're about to use. And then just uh, as a matter of course, just so that we can kind of get some input, in, or rather output from, from the application so we know what's going on, We'll include standard io.h, stdio.h, and we'll include string.h because I'm going to copy a string into um, into a into a struct into a variable that that we're going to set up with a struct right now. So a struct is a is a structure. It is a it is a way of structuring a, a variable in C sort of defining something, so we're going to do a struct space, we'll just call it mmbuffer, mmbuffer, you could call it anything, this is completely arbitrary, uh, curly brace, and then long mmtype, semicolon, and then car mmtext, that's car as in character, so I guess it's care, uh, c-h-a-r, it's, it's an array of characters, mmtext, and we're going to make it, we're going to allot 128 characters to this, or, or slots for that. Semicolon, close the curly brace, because that's the end of our struct, but the the after after the curly brace, we'll write the word message, M-E-S-S-A-G-E, and then a semicolon. And message is going to be the variable that that struct defines. And now we'll create a new int main parentheses parentheses semicolon or not semicolon uh, curly brace and then int msqid semicolon so we're making an integer we're, we're establishing that there will be a variable called msqid and it's going to be of the integer type and we're going to use that integer type and actually i guess we could just use it now if we wanted to uh, to establish part of this variable this message variable so we're going to do message dot mm type so it's, it's this very the struct allows us to sort of structure or to create variables 
almost as if though they were, I guess you could think of them as a class. Um, and you could also think of it as a Lua table, if that's, if that's what you prefer. And if you need a good book on Lua, I've heard about a really good one called Developing Games with Lua and Love on the Raspberry Pi from A Press Publisher. Hint, hint. Okay, so message.mmtype. So we're just looking at this variable called message, and we're saying the the form or the the slot called mmtype equals, uh, and we could just do something arbitrary here. Um, I'm going to call it 8. Just Why not? Semicolon. All this is doing is giving sort of a classification to to this message that we're going that that we're building right now. You could think of it as a unique identifier, except it's not necessarily a unique identifier. It's really more like an ID, but we've already got a bunch of ID terms floating around, so I don't want to I don't to add another one. So we're calling it mm type, and we're assigning it the number 8 completely arbitrarily and we're doing it hard-coded in the application for no good reason. We could easily construct a more complex application where the user is able to specify the the, the, the type or the class or whatever you want to, you know, the unique identifier or the non-unique identifier of, of this message. But it does need something. It needs to know where to look for a message. So this is kind of the, well it's the kind of mes message. It's, it's the kind of message number is number eight. And that could be anything. That could be one, it could be two, it could be three, it could be 119. It doesn't, doesn't matter. We're going to use it later when we go check our, to, to check our email or, you know, our quote unquote mail as the application. Uh, we're going to use this to tell our receiving, our receiving end where, what type of message to receive. So we'll just remember, we'll jot down on a little imaginary piece of paper here um, that we're looking at mm types or, or message types uh, that have been assigned the number eight and you'll see where we use that later I didn't want to use one or something or zero or something obvious like that because those are such kind of overloaded numbers in I guess eight isn't all that much better it's hard to find a non overloaded number in computing but we're using eight Okay, so now we're going to do a, uh, let's see, string copy, so that's strcpy, and then parentheses, and again, we're going to build our little message variable here, so message dot, what's our other one, mmtext, so mmtext, and then we'll do a comma, and then whatever string we want to put into that slot, so we'll do a quote, hello, world, close quote, close parentheses, close semicolon. And so, so far, all we've done is we've made a bunch of variables, and and this is the first real function that we've used, string copy, uh, and that's from the, uh, uh, what is, oh, that's from string.h is what that's from. Uh, okay, so now we're going to make another variable, or rather we're going to define a variable, because we've made, we, we, we created it up here, int msqid, making a new one, or we're going to, give it an actual number here in again hard coding it um, that probably would have made more sense to do it when we were creating the variable actually but whatever msqid equals 294914 and you might remember that number because that's the message id the, the message q id that we created with ipc make and we'll just close that with a semicolon so this would not scale well 
understand. By hard coding the message queue ID into the application, that's the thing that would force a user in this pretend horrible scenario to make their own IPC node or, or uh, message queue, and then to enter that message queue into the application and then compile it. It just wouldn't, it would not work. Uh, it would it would be stupid to do it this way. You would really actually want to create a little bit more of a complex application and have it so that the user can define uh, maybe a message queue ID as they're issuing the command. But we're not doing that. We're being really lazy right now and we're just trying to keep this as short as possible. And I think we're doing an all right job, to be honest, because we've got like maybe four more lines to go if if we're if we're being verbose. So next line we'll do a printf. Now that's the that's from the standard io.h library from C. So we're printing f and we're doing a s oh no we're not. Let's do this first. Um, so the next thing we'll do is the message send, msgsnd. Now that is from the message.h library, and it's a function that exists that we didn't make in this. It's not a variable, it's not a function, it's just something that we, I mean it is a function, but it's not something that we created here. It's something from message.h from the sys uh, directory. So message, message send parentheses msqid, that's what we just defined, the 294914 comma, and I guess we didn't really have to do that there, we could have just plugged it in here, but whatever, uh, comma, ampersand message, so now we're actually invoking the variable that we built in with the struct, comma, size of, parentheses, message, close parentheses, comma, zero, close parentheses, close semicolon, and then we'll print f some stuff like message sent, message sent, colon, percent s, backslash in, close quote, comma, message dot mm text, close parentheses and semicolon. And then we'll do print f again, message, message, m, m s g q i d yeah, that's right, message qid uh, equals percent delta, percent d for, for digit, I think, and then backslash in, close quote, comma, m s q i d parentheses, semicolon. So all we're doing there is we're confirming what we've what we've done, so that when we run it, we actually see a little bit of output just for comfort. And then we'll do a return zero because this is int main, so it has to return an integer. So return zero semicolon, and then curly brace, and save and quit. And I'll, I'll paste all that code into um, into the into the show notes if you want to actually try this on your own. GCC postput.c dash o for output postput. So now we've got an executable, a binary executable called postput, and I'll I'll hit return, and it says message sent hello world msgqid equals two nine four nine one four. So we've just sent a message into our queue. Can we can we be sure that we've done that? Well, yes, we can. IPCS for show. Remember. Now, if we scroll up here, we see that in the message queues uh, section, there is a 294914. That's that's what we've been targeting. Owner is me, Klaatu, Perms 644. Now, before it said used bytes were zero and messages were zero, and now it says used bytes is 136 and messages is one. So we know that we've sent a message to our message queue. 
it's being held there right now. So that's kind of cool. That's exciting. How do we get to that to that message? Well, for that, as far as I know, we need to write a message checking application, something to check in with that message queue. And it's going to be largely the same thing. Um, so we'll do include sysipc.h, and I'm going to call this file postgit.c. We'll include sysmsg.h, and we'll include standardio.h, because we, we want to use printf, and that's where printf comes from. We're going to make the same thing. We need a place, because if we, if we go get stuff from a memory uh, address, we need some place to put it into, right? So we're going to make we're going to use the same struct out of the other one. I'm just literally copying and pasting it within Emacs right into this right into the top here. And then we're going to do int main uh, curly brace and then we'll make a new variable called int msqid. Actually, we'll just this time we'll do it a little bit. We'll we'll take that shortcut that I realized we should have taken last time, which is to say, um, while defining the variable, we will also uh, establish what its value is. So int uh, int msqid equals two nine four nine one four, and then we're gonna reuse, we're gonna use a a new function out of the msg.h library called message receive msgrcv parentheses msqid which of course we just now defined as 294914 which is the message queue that we created with ipcmk comma ampersand message and so that's invoking our our variable from the struct and then comma size of parentheses message parentheses comma now this is where message receive is kind of strict it wants to know what to look for so what it what what it's looking for is any message that has the tag eight on it. Now remember we we assigned our message this mm type as I called it. It's kind of a unique identifier. Except it's not. It's really a tag. That's what I should have called it or a label. And in fact that would have been a perfect name for it. I don't know why I didn't think of that. And we're just going to call it. We're, we're we're saying yeah we want to find any messages tagged with the number eight. And then we'll comma zero parentheses semicolon because that's what message receive wants. Print f parentheses quote backslash m msg q i d equals percent delta. Um, should we do a percent uh, a backslash n? Yeah, let's do a backslash n just to be make sure. Close quote comma msq id. Uh, close parentheses, close semicolon, and then print f, quote, you got mail, colon, percent s, backslash n, close quote, comma, message dot mm text, close parentheses, close semicolon, and then we'll do a return zero, semicolon, and a curly brace. So those two programs were about 19 lines and 16 lines respectively so that's not too bad i don't i don't think that's too bad and i got an error in my compilation i wonder what i screwed up here oh i know what i screwed up i screwed up my there we go gcc uh, dot slash postgit dot c dash o postgit gotta do the dash o 
or else it gets very confused. Okay, so now if I do a dot slash post get, it tells me message QID was 294914, and you got mail. Hello world. That's it. That's the proof. So what would, what did we just do? Oh, oh, now let's do IPCS again. Scroll up a bit. And now we still got the 294914. Still owned by me, Klaatu. Still got the permissions of 644. But the used bytes is back down to zero, and the messages is back down to zero. So what did we just do? Well, we created a memory space that's reserved for stuff, right, for data. And then we wrote a little program to send data into that message space. And then we wrote another little program to go grab the data from that message space. That's all we've done. It's not that big of a deal, it's not that impressive really, but that's the idea, right? So if you're writing an application that needs to talk to, I don't know, another application, that's one way of making that happen. There are many other ways of making it happen, but that is one way. So that you can write some data to this place, and something else can check to make sure that it's that, that data is there, and it can act accordingly. Now there are problems with this. There are, or there are dangers. You know, there, there. You could do this, and some other application could check for the message, and the message isn't there. So what's hap What happens then? Or, or something checks, and then it doesn't, or it's checking right as the data is being written. You know, you could. It could get messy. So you have to kind of make sure that that you have all the right sort of safeguards in place for that. You don't want to rely exclusively on just you know writing to, to memory locations and then assuming it that the other application will know where to check and, and so on so there's a little bit of you know stuff to do there's some some back-end maintenance that you would have to do before actually utilizing this but um, it's it's a way to, to to manage that sort of handoff between applications and it's not restricted to character arrays or anything like that. I mean, it's it's a lot more robust, actually, than, than this demonstration. This demonstration was the bare minimum, the, the super simple stuff, but you can actually put a lot more in there, and that's really, really useful. One thing I didn't do, I guess, and I could do in postget.c is I could say, okay, well, once you get the message, once it is received, Actually, before I do that, I'm gonna I'm gonna change the post put application so we'll, to a different message. And you see why this is a horrible, horrible way of doing anything. So instead of hello world, we'll say goodbye world. We'll save that, and then we'll open up post get, and we'll say okay. Well, once you get the message, do a message CTL. That's msgctl, parentheses, and we're going to act upon message QID, or msqid, comma, ipc underscore rmid, and that is a, a call that we're making to the IPC system to remove an ID, and then comma, null, parentheses, semicolon. So now watch this. If I do a GCC of post put dot C dash O post put 
and the same thing for post get dot c dash o post get. Now I'm going to run post put, and I'll just do a really quick ipcs, and I'll pipe that to oh, no, I won't pipe that to, um, to uh, head. Tells me that. doesn't tell me anything yet because I'm mistyping everything. There we go. It tells me that uh, there are two messages there because I, I accidentally sent two messages just now. Uh, and 272 bytes are used. So that's 294.914. So now we're going to do a post get. And it tells me, okay, message QID is 294.914. And you got mail. Goodbye, world. Okay, well, we'll run IPCS piping it to head again. Now it's down to zero. There are no more messages there, and there's no more message QID. And the reason for that is because in my new version of PostGet, I told message control to remove that ID entirely. Again, you probably wouldn't want to include that necessarily in the app. I mean, maybe you would, but maybe during bug testing, you wouldn't want to activate that because, as you can see, I had two messages in there, and then it removed the ID. So if that second message had been important, that would have been a pity to have lost. It wasn't important and doesn't matter, but um, message control, remove ID is the way to remove ID. The other way to remove ID, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but, but as you may have picked up from when I read the applications that we were going over in this episode, is IPCRM. And the uh, IPCRM tool lets you remove either shared memory segments or message queues or semaphores by either ID or by key. And it's a pretty straightforward command, IPCRM, and then you, you give it whatever you want to do. So let's say that we're going to remove... I don't think I have anything to remove right now. Do I? Yeah, I do. There it is. Uh, 1150163. So, IPCRM, and this is, well, I'm going to have to look at the options again. IPCRM-H. So, I'm getting rid of a shared memory by ID, so that is dash lowercase m. And now if I do IPCS, uh, yeah. And then I look for the 115 number. It's just not there. It's gone. It's been removed. And obviously, one would want to do that after one has, I don't know, quit an application or whatever. I mean, you would want to, you'd want to get rid of the things that you've instantiated. And again, you're probably not doing that through Bash. You're probably doing that through your application itself. But they exist in Util Linux so that you can manually manipulate these things as needed. I haven't looked at the source code. I'm assuming that they're just front ends for... Actually, yeah, in the man page, I think it even says that it's... It doesn't... It doesn't I don't think it says that this is just a front end for, for this command, but it says, see also, IPCS, IPCMK, ah, here it is, message control, message get, um, uh, yeah, uh, sh uh, shim, shim control, shim... DT, shim get, shim, yeah, sem get, sem control. So yeah, all these, all the, all the related commands are, are, are listed as references in these bash frontends. So I'm assuming they're just, yeah, really, really 
bare bones probably front ends to those applications which is probably a great way to learn um whatever they're written in probably c i, I would imagine uh, it would probably be a really nice sort of basic application to look at and get a feel for the, how things are structured so anyway that's um that's the ipc suite really that's that's ipc including ipc.h and message.h from util linux hopefully that was if not educational, then informative and um, elucidating. Oh, and I should probably mention I remembered the, the website that I was referring to earlier. So this there's this website, ss64.com slash pass, and it is a password generator structured around, I think, a JavaScript library that is... Um, JavaScript, yeah, JavaScript library that is basically a front end for SHA-256. And the, the concept is very, very similar to LessPass. You issue a, you can go to this website, or you can download it yourself. I mean, it, it's a self, self-contained, it, it, it doesn't need to be online, in other words. It is a, it is a vehicle for, for this JavaScript thing, but you can do it just as easily by downloading the site or running it in a terminal. Uh, I'll get into that in a moment. You you give it a, a master password, so let's do bogus123, and uh, we'll click show password, and it generates these fairly random strings. I mean, they're not random, but they're SHA-SUM strings based on the combination of your master password plus whatever whatever key you provide. So by default, it assumes that your key is the name of a website. So for instance, um, let's, let's look at um, example.com, example.com, generate. And it gives me a, a 20, by default, a 20 character string of uppercase and lowercase letters mostly, a couple of numbers in there. And no matter what you do, it will always generate the same password, given the same master password. Now, of course, there's nothing in here saying that your master password has to be just your master password. You could do clatu uh, colon bogus123 iteration, so colon um, 1, or actually 0, since this is the very first one. So now I'll generate passwords based on that. And that gives me a different string for example.com. So now I've just expanded his little application here to require the username, the master password, and then an iteration of that password. And then there's the custom the, the custom value of example.com to create the finalized 20 character. Now if I change any one of those things, you know, like iteration 1, I get a different password, or if I use a different uh, username, not clat2, bogus123, iteration1, completely different password, and so on. And the way that it works is kind of revealed to you if you go to his command line version, which simply takes you to a, a bash function that echoes the key and the site name. So that's your master password, and then colon, the site name pipes that into SHA-256-SUM, pipes that into Perl, 
which uh, I'm not so good at Pearl, but it, it seems to be replacing some characters. Um, now, actually, the Pearl, I don't know what that's doing. It's Oh, it's, it's extracting the digits and the letters. Uh, and then it is printing those back out into base64. Pipes that into a translate function, tr, to change pluses and slashes to the letters e and lowercase a. Not really sure what that's all about. And then pipes that into cut bytes 1 through 20. So he's basically mixing it up through a bunch of different, you know, the base64 and the SHA-256 sum, mixing it up that way and then extracting just the letters and numbers and dumping out the whatever number you've said so a 20 digit password by by default so you could expand that certainly you could say okay well i'm actually happy with the plus signs but you can maybe replace the slashes with a less i don't think many passwords online would let you use a slash so maybe you know i don't know the number three or whatever or you could use a no, it would have to be standard, yeah, so... Anyway, a, a dash, maybe, or a percent sign. Who knows? Uh, and that would that would provide you a, a sort of a random-ish uh, generated password. And as long as you use that same equation to calculate your password each time, then you're going to get the same password no matter what. So it's really essentially the same thing as LessPass. It's just a little bit... A little bit different. I haven't looked at LessPass enough to know if it's you know how much how much better the LessPass algorithm is, but I think the the theory is the same. Okay, there you go. SS64.com. Check it out. LessPass. Check that out. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
an underground radio station here and we say what we feel like saying.